Jim, are there any um, particularly memorable experiences or stories that you could share, like at least two or three that happened when you were in the studio or maybe you guys were uh, going for a break outside and doing something extracurricular or, or whatever? <laughs> Give me something. Uh, well, here's a story for you. One night, uh, I flew into Detroit, and I was meeting George there, and then we were going to record in the studio the next day. And so we went to the hotel, and they only had a, a bed, uh, a room with a single bed, you know, a single double bed. So George and I had to sleep in the same bed that night. And I was, I knew George was a freak. And I said, I wonder if George is gay. I wonder if they what's this going to be like? Oh, man. I, and I was, I was really scared about it. But, you know, I love George like a brother. Anyway, nothing happened. <laughs> but I had seen him running around naked on stage and stuff like this. And I just, I didn't know how much a freak he was or where it was going to go. But I was glad it didn't. <laughs> wow. So. Did, did you ever uh, get to any of the Mothership shows back then at their peak? Did you see that? Oh, experience? yeah, yeah. They they had me uh, go out on the road with them when we, uh, you know, when they we did the big tour with the spaceship landing and all of that. And I went out on the road to make sure that I didn't, I didn't mix the shows, but I looked over the shoulders of the guys that were doing it to make sure they had the sound right. So, yeah, we had... I mean, we were here at the L.A. Coliseum, and I somebody said something, uh, you know, into the and the crowd just scattered, and we had this big wall in front, and they scaled the wall, and I'm back in the recording truck. I think the whole thought the whole thing was going to come down on us, but it didn't. So you know, that was kind of hairy, but uh, that's when we were recording uh, the uh, uh, the Funk Earth tour. So, uh, no, I had a lot of fun, you know, uh, with them on the road. And there were a lot of crazy things happening, as you can imagine. And nothing, nothing over the top. Was there ever anything um, more awkward or any tension uh, racially related? Because, <clears throat> you know, I went to those shows back in the 70s, too. In a lot of cases, I was like the only white face there. Um, yeah, and, and Tom talked about that a little bit too. W was that ever any kind of issue at all? Uh, there was a show we did in the South, uh, which was really crazy. And oh, I didn't, I didn't mention Billy, Billy Bass. He was another important part of that in the early days. Uh, but Boogie was playing bass at the time. Uh, we were playing in this, and you know, he was smoking a cigarette backstage and this was just like out of the movies uh, first of all i couldn't believe this this shit still went on but we had to play in the afternoon not the evening because it was too dangerous and there was a rope down the center of the auditorium and the black people had to sit on one side and the white people on the other you know so for, first of all that's like what is this Anyway, Boogie's smoking a cigarette, and this, and this big redneck sheriff comes out of nowhere, and he's kind of like, Ew, da, 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 da. 
And Boogie's like, that's just, you know, I said, I jumped in the middle of it and I was able to, to quiet it, it all. Uh, um, one of two white guys, there was one white guy in uh, the horn section and then there was me. Oh, Rick. Yeah, Rick. Yeah, but I never felt, I never felt any racial tension. And because, you know, George had the, the hippie, uh, kind of viewpoint. He was a true hippie, you know, just like I was in the 60s. It, the, the racial stuff never played a part in anything with, with me. I don't know, maybe it played a part with other people, um, but we got along just fine. It was like, may, maybe later, some of the guys that came in later that weren't there from the beginning, maybe they were a little suspect. I remember one time, you know, after a, after a show, we were all going to eat somewhere and there were a few of the fans sitting at the table and there was this one black kid sitting there and he was so grateful to be there and be with his heroes and everything and I, and he was acting a little cold towards me what's this white guy doing sitting with us you know that's eh, not right it's about the only time i can remember any kind of racial tension and that wasn't even tension i mean we were like brothers, just like we were in the 60s. Like brothers, it didn't matter the color of your skin or your, anything. You know. Well, that's, that's the way it ought to be. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, too, yeah. too often, it's not how it is. Um, so yeah. good to hear. You know, so on that tour, did did was it in the plan from the beginning for the Mothership Tour to do a live record from it, or did that come up during the show? Uh, how did that sort of uh, develop? Well, it was like, yeah, we should record this because the band's getting big and we know we're going to, the record company's going to want something. And so it's, it's kind of a natural thing that happens when, when you have some success and you get some money, you know, you, yeah, there it is. <laughs> there I have it is. them all here. I've actually been forgetting to hold up the covers, but there's one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it's it's just a natural progression. You have the money, so let's let's record it. Not necessarily that we're going making an album, but yeah, we do it. You know, I always love that record, but um, I was never uh, really thrilled with the um, the sound quality of that particular record. You know, it it just sounded a little bit muddy. Um, how did you feel about the quality of it? I agree with you. And what I wanted to do, but we didn't do, was cheat and do some uh, recording in the studio, you know, to make up for some of the stuff that didn't turn out so well. I definitely agree with you. However, do you remember uh, what album was that on? Cosmic... Uh, Cosmic Slop, we did a live recording of it for Hardcore Jollies. I'm sure you have Hardcore Jollies there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, I had here. You can keep talking about it. Well, that that was done in an airport hangar. We're doing some kind of filming with uh, Penelope Spiris, who became a big director later on. But so we were recording it. Yeah. And the recording of that 
that cosmic slop, not the one that was done earlier, but the live one on that album, that was magic. And I, I was so pleased with that. And it, it I just, love the sound of that. Yeah, I just, it's the best thing on that on that record. I mean, everyone agrees that's the standout cut. And that was no overdubs, no nothing, just recorded in an airport hangar out in Long Island somewhere. You know, and that was in preparation for going out on tour with the mothership. Well, they later released the Newberg sessions, which I think is from that same uh, session. And the whole thing sounds awesome. I mean, just oh, I should, great. I did, I should look that up. I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tremendous. I think the um, acoustics or whatever of that hangar were tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it was magic. But it, you know, it's hard. Uh, when you're out on the road and there's lots of stuff going on and the guys, you know, they were not, they were sloppy on that tour in as much as, Hey, get closer to the microphone. You know, I was, I was trying to tell them I, it's not the same as being in a studio where you can have them, you know, you have more control. We didn't, we didn't have control. I, so yes, I, I agree with you. The sound wasn't what it could have been with that. Uh, I remember back then also they were talking about or word was getting out that they were going to maybe do a, a, a live movie or or you know some kind of uh, a feature based on the Mothership tour. Did you hear talk of that too? Well, yeah. They, I mean, they had Penelope Spheris there shooting this stuff in in the hangar. And I assumed she would be shooting more stuff and that something would come of this, but never did, as far as I know. Again, there's probably a lot of film somewhere. That's very disappointing. Well, it's up to guys like you to go find it and put it out there. <laughs> put it out. Whoever stops sitting on it, whoever has it. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the drugs coming in and that really leading to a lot of the uh, sort of, uh, you know, fraying of the, the empire. Um, but how much also do you think was, you know, uh, money, um, you know, people not getting credit? Um, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Label interference. How, how, how yes. are those factors playing in? That I'm glad you brought that up because that also is a big part of it. Uh, the resentment and not being paid and trying, you know, not getting proper credit for the things you've done. Yeah, that played a big part too. That that brought the whole thing down. Money, you know, the root of all evil, huh? Did you sense sort of some animosities building up in certain places? And Oh yeah, I mean Bernie's wife Judy was like, and she's you know Judy. Okay, she's she's been a good friend over the years, um, as well as Bernie. You know, uh, she, she was the first one who voiced the complaints, and you know a lot of them are justified. And if I would have uh, had any advice for George, I would have told him, you know, just make sure people get their credit and get what's coming to them and 
get paid. And, uh, but who knows, you know, things, this is an old story in the record business. You know, the magic happens and then it's gone and you never can get it back. And why did it happen? Too much drugs, money, resentment. Who knows? I don't know. All of the above. So when you uh, decided to take your, your leave, was that a hard decision for you? Did you ever kind of have any regrets or, you know, and what did you go on to do? No, uh, you know, I had just, I'd just gotten married for the third time. And, and this was the keeper. We, we had a good 40 years together, my wife and I. And what we did is we started a record label. JDC Records, it was a record to begin with. It stood for Jim and Dale Callen, my wife. And we got lucky. Disco was just coming in and I cut a, a record, Mr. DJ. Uh, the artist was the Glass family, which same Glass family name I used for the acid rock band of the 60s. But all of a sudden we were an R&B disco band. and. Uh, we hit big, you know, we, and we owned it. And this is what I wanted to do anyway. I wanted to go and make music where I could reap the rewards of it. And uh, so we had a worldwide hit with Mr. DJ. We sold the licensing rights to every country. And uh, I was very happy to now go on and be a record label and eventually a record distributor. I, I haven't really been in the studio much uh, as an engineer since those days. And with all the digital and everything, I have no desire to. So, uh, you know, it was a natural progression for me, leaving them. Uh, and it was getting like, you know, it was changing. The vibe was changing and uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't like it used to be. Did you still keep in touch with him? Yeah, of course. Uh, like I say, Bernie and I, yeah, always over the years, uh, Billy Bass, Billy Nelson, Don Silva, we've remained good friends forever. We put out her, uh, or distributed her uh, solo record of three or four years ago. Uh, yeah, it was very. Oh, simple. yeah, yeah. All my funky friends. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I stayed in touch with the, uh, with the guy. What What year was it? Uh, Bernie by far. Bernie by far. What What year was it about when um, Mr. DJ Mr. DJ hit? Uh, seventy eight. So it's like the peak of disco pretty much. Yeah, it, it was like uh, the perfect storm. You know, it was like I had cut this record with Funkadelic, Get Off Your Ass and Jam, and they started playing it in the disco. So I, well, let me go see how it sounds in a disco. So I went to this big disco in L.A., Studio One. That was on uh, this one. And, and when, they, when, yeah, when they played it. <laughs> Signatures. <laughs> yep. Nice. 
And and heads up to uh, Pedro Bell, who did all the wonderful artwork back in the day. And I I don't even know if he's still alive or not. I know he was having trouble seeing, but. Um, you know, when I heard that record in the disco, I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a record for the discos. This is cool. It sounded so full and rich and big, and I so I was inspired to do that, and that's why uh, I recorded Mr. DJ. But it was a perfect storm because this was just when disco was starting to break out and get big worldwide. And Medem, the uh, that's the music festival in France where everybody goes to sell their wares held in the same building as the film festival as the Cannes Film Festival we booked ourselves to go there and uh, in the months leading up to that our record kept climbing the charts so by the time we got there everybody in the world from all these different different countries wanted to buy disco records to release in their country. So my wife and I, we worked day and night meeting with all the different record labels from all over the world and licensing it out to everyone. It, it was just magic, again, magic. The right time, the right place to, you know. So. You, went, you went from hippie rock to hardcore funk to disco. <laughs> All within about the same decade. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a trip. You know, the, the, the Grateful Dead would uh, call it, uh, you know, <laughs> the trip. I forget the phrase they use. The, they have a phrase with trip in it. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think this is the record you were talking about that has the bride's tune on it, um, the compilation. Love is something. Here. Yeah, that's, Don't, that's. Do not listen to that version. <laughs> do not listen to that version. Lying, lying through it. <laughs> uh, I noticed also that you had released these on JDC, which are the Eddie Hazel. Uh, uh, not the rest in P, the uh, Jams oh, from the Heart. Yeah. This one, okay. Jams from the Heart was was a power trio. It was Buddy Miles on bass, or uh, Buddy Miles on drums, Billy Cox on bass. These were the two guys that played with Hendrix, uh, you know, a band of gypsies, and Eddie on guitar. And what it, we were just like, it was power trio time, and that's what we were doing. But we took it to Warner Brothers, and they said, uh-uh, no, no, let's do something you know, we can sell, we can sell. So they rejected it. And later on I said, hey, this is good stuff. Let's put it out. So that's what we did. Put it out on JDC. Wasn't there another Hazel 2 or was that it for uh, JDC? No, that was it. The The other one you held up, I uh, that wasn't me. Unless they use some of those recordings for that album might is it the same uh, album or no um no it's uh, i mean i just made up we didn't have any titles on those songs so you know i just made up titles for uh the eddie hazel that we did so you you went on to have a lot of success with jdc though i mean you put out 
how many you know how many records in total and how many uh relative hits did you have on jvc well we had uh we had uh minor hits okay we uh we would be distributing, as I told you, we got into distribution. So what would happen is we'd be importing a lot of these uh, disco records would come from other countries and we'd import them. And if they would sell well enough, then we would uh, ask for the license to release them in the States. Uh, and so, I mean, for us, if we sold 10, 15,000, 12 inches, we were happy. That was for us a, a good selling record. Uh, and we also did our own recordings and you know we, we had, did a lot with this group Taps out of Canada, uh, MC Miker and DJ Schwen doing holiday rap out of uh, Amsterdam. We just, that one was just selling like crazy. And so Stacy and I who worked for me, we went over there and wrangled the rights to release it out in the states from those guys then madonna got pissed at us and she didn't want a rap version of her song being released in the united states because it would uh, devalue the copyright you know uh, chevy or ford wouldn't want to use it in a commercial because it had rap with it you know so fortunately we knew her ex-boyfriend who owned half of that uh, Jellybean Benitas and oh, yeah. he interceded yeah. for us and allowed us to go forward in releasing it. Uh, so yeah, we had a lot of success with the different uh, uh, 12 inches mainly, 12 inch singles. A lot of it was kind of like grassroots uh, type stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, it was like uh, the DJs in the club. Well, you were a DJ, you know, they were the ones that, you know, you didn't have to promote to the radio stations. It, just as long as they were playing it in the clubs, you could sell some records. And that's what we did. Yeah. There's a lot of the rap, 80s. sort of electro-funk kind of stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm working with Uncle Jam's Army and now the Egyptian Lover, who just did an in-store in my store on Friday, which was mobbed and people were just... You know who he is? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... I've been working with him since 1984 and distributing his records. Uh, so a few of the guys are still around. We're still doing stuff. Was he, was he part of the world-class wrecking crew or not? No. Okay. That was, Dr. Dre was part of the world-class yeah. wrecking crew, which we also distributed. And the head guy in that, Lonzo Williams, we still, we still do business together. Uh, no. Egyptian Lover came out of Uncle Jam's Army. That's right. Which uh, was a smart thing. Roger Clayton had that collective of DJs. And, uh, you know, somehow Archie Ivey was somehow involved in that, too. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's Pro from the early days. But using that name, uh, Roger, using that name, Uncle Jam's Army, you know, they used to get 50,000 people coming to the sports arena to hear their collective of DJs. And their star DJ was the Egyptian lover. Wasn't his album called On the Nile? Yes. Yeah. We still sell it to this day. It still sells very well, as does the 12-inch single Egypt, Egypt. Mm -hmm. 
and he this guy he tours all over the world he's always working he's the sweetest guy to deal with in the world very close friend after all these years uh just nicest guy never any problem you know a new record comes out he'll do any in-store with us anywhere you know he, he played in berlin last year when his new record came out and we set up an in-store at this one record store and we told him you better take a lot of product and they said oh no 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 we said listen you're going to get mobbed people are going to they're going to want to come see this guy and they they put him in a little corner and they're not expecting anybody to come and they hadn't bought enough product just like we warned them and all of a sudden this big line starts developing outside and it's going down the block and around the corner so these guys were freaking out but but they learned their lesson uh, how popular he was so he plays uh, all over europe he he plays uh, in asia has a big following everywhere my son who lives in berlin you know he's all he's always the big shot because he can get as many people as he wants into egypt's shows you know <laughs> and uh, so it's it's been great too he's he is the the standout guy we've worked with over the years yeah well to me at that time period he was kind of in a way the west coast uh equivalent of africa bombada seemed to be like on the east coast exactly right both influenced heavily by Kraftwerk, the mm -hmm. german group uh Greg got into craft work because his girlfriend in high school uh, had uh, a record of craft work and she said to him, hey, will you make me a cassette tape of this? And he said, sure. And he, so he's making her the cassette tape and he's really digging it, you know. And so that's how he, he started with that electro sound. He and Africa Bombata, very similar entryway into, uh, you know, both influenced by craft work. Uh, very cool. And he's still doing it. He's still doing that sound. The, re the new album, 1984, which was the year he started, came out last year and did very well. Before I let you go, um, can you tell me what through your career are you most proud of and do you have any regrets? Well, I'm most proud of having treated the musicians and artists fairly and humanely and I, I you know i've just been a lucky guy man i have always just been a lucky guy in the 60s i was was right there in the midst of things with everybody and uh then in the 70s with the the p-funk crew and who knew they would become the legends that they've become and uh I don't know. I've just been blessed. I've had a blessed life. I'm very grateful. Well, we're grateful that you were there too to help make such great music with the Funk Mob, for sure. Um, so, if uh, folks want to uh, investigate JDC Records and and that sort of thing, uh, where where should they go? How can they keep up with that? I think we have an online presence and uh, what is all that stuff you know uh, <clears throat> 
Tina actually, who set up the interview with you, she's in charge of that. And yeah, I think things are posted and you can easily find us and uh, come to our record store and you'll uh, enjoy our selection of music, I'm sure. I'm thinking you must be gratified to see vinyl making a comeback. Oh man, am I. <laughs> Listen, when CDs came in, I knew all the top guys in town, you know, that were in the sound business. Nobody thought it would catch on. We heard those things. Man, this is tinny. This is shit. There's no upper mid-range. The voices sound off. The bass is whack. And what's that high ringing shit that's going on? Nobody thought that would catch on. How wrong we are. But, yes, I feel very validated that Vinyl came back in such a strong way because the analog sound, man, you put a record on, it fills the room. It fills the room with warmth and sound and, you know, not so much on digitally, you know, synthesized, synthesized drums and all of that, but on the real instruments. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a vindication because, uh, uh, you know, God. The convenience of the CD took over, but vinyl's back. Yeah. Amen. All right. Hey, uh, I'm going to close this down. Just hang for a minute, and um, we'll we'll close this out. Thank you again so much, uh, Jim Kellen, my special guest today, the wizard at the controls of a slew of all-time classic P-Funk albums, an important Southern California record industry figure. Thank you again, Jim, for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, you made it very easy. Thanks. Sincere thank you as always to viewers and listeners. Be sure to be on the lookout for upcoming Truth and Rhythm episodes and catch up with previous installments from FunkinStuff.net on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading providers. Want to hear from you? Email me at ScottG at FunkinStuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you like and what you don't like. Until next time, on behalf of Mr. Jim Callen, this is Scott Dr. Jake Goldfine as always saying keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.